Hello, good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, and we are continuing our look through a Christmas carol. Before I start, remember all my stuff is on straighttalkingenglish.com. You can find this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitch and SoundCloud. I'm SDR8 Talk English on Twitter and my first book, The Full Context of Jekyll and Hyde, based on the earlier part of this season, is available on Amazon. Just search Jekyll Context and you will have it all lucky you. As I'm continuing the Christmas Carol series, this has been the basis of my second book, so what you're hearing is also some sneaky extracts from the second one and if this seems awesome and you'd love to have this in written form book two will be out hopefully at the end of august but if not pretty soon how exciting is that right today we are talking about ghosts ghostly ghosts in particular the three ghosts from christmas carol i wish i had a ghost story to tell you i was honestly racking my brain for any ghostly things that have happened in my life and this is the closest i can get so uh, last summer i was staying in chicago in this hotel which when i googled it was supposed to be the most haunted hotel in america and i had a migraine i went to try and find some ice to put on my head and i couldn't find any so i went to the fourth floor it was dead quiet it was creepy and i absolutely just got this really bad vibe so i was like you know what you know no thank you no thank you went back upstairs had a long shower slept off the migraine that i considered to be my closest ghostly encounter because apparently the fourth floor in this haunted hotel is where all the ghosts are and evidently they're not the kind of benevolent ghost um that brings people ice casper the friendly ghost style which is really annoying aren't the ghosts in christmas carol benevolent though would they bring people ice i kind of hope so the first ghost and i'm considering marley separately that will be the next christmas carol episode the first ghost the ghost of christmas past presents childhood it's pretty happy i mean mean, dickens's childhood was quite happy at the start he had his books he had this nice house in chatham and then it all went a little bit grim when he had to go work in the blacking factory but it all why why start with scrooge's childhood well dickens subscribed to this romantic with a big r the literary movement that their view was the child was the father of the man our childhood experiences shape us dickens firmly believed that about the blacking factory he felt that that experience shaped he the biggest proponent of this was william wordsworth so we are coming back full circle to uh, the prelude again the childhood experiences shape us they lead us on this journey but scrooge's childhood is not that happy could we see him actually as an abuse victim in what he's presenting in chris past well he's abandoned by his dad he sees his sister who he's lost is the this the bit that enables him to start healing from his trauma well dickens is writing this 43 years before freud started talking about trauma so in some ways we can't say this is a freudian analysis we can't say this is like your subconscious is dealing with your trauma or anything like that but dickens did believe in the power of autobiography and the power of confession when he worked at urania house the 
home for sex workers who wanted to change their lives. One of the things he did before he admitted them was ask them for an autobiography or ask them to tell him his life story, which he wrote down. This actually inspired Dickens to come out and talk about his experiences at the factory. So, yeah. This, the power of seeing, the power of reliving your own childhood could be the very first step to healing. Well, again, why put in a ghost? Right, it's a Christmas story. It's supposed to be happy and jolly. It's supposed to be Dickens' whimsy. But for Dickens, it all seems to be mixed together. His earlier story, The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton, <laughs> from uh, the Pickwick Papers, have the same theme. The supernatural can tell us something. He also liked the sort of playful fairy tale aspect of having a ghost show up. The idea that like a fairy godmother can wave a wand and solve a problem. The magical, the supernatural is what will solve Scrooge's problems. And that's what he's playing on, this fairy tale thing, which is why he has these blooming ghosts showing up all the time. Christmas present is a little bit more interesting. The function of Christmas present is to introduce Scrooge to the Cratchits. He sees the consequences of his own actions on the people around him. He's never actually seen the consequences of him paying Cratchit comparatively little. And now he's actually confronted with it and he can see this family who are presented as so noble, so perfect. And he starts to realise this is what I'm responsible for. The setting in Christmas present is so London. And in fact, the Cratchit's house where he visits is based on Dickens's childhood home when they first moved to London in Camden. If you are walking from Euston to Mornington Crescent or Camden Town and you take uh, the slightly back way through um, one of the estates, that's where he's talking about that specific area. London is almost a character in Dickens's book. London at this point is the most changed city anywhere. It's been chopped and changed and excavated and redone at any other point in its history. His modern vision makes it seem like a vital place, but it's also a place of conflict. It's a place that's always changing. By using London in that way, we've shown the different areas and the different economic possibilities in a very small space in the same way that Lewis did with Mr Hyde's house and Jekyll's house being so close together. Dickens is using that same um, dichotomy to present the different classes. He was obsessed with London. London features in all of his books and he's actually supposed to be one of the first writers to use London as the main setting rather than somewhere that's just kind of incidental to actually draw on the places. Let's go a little bit deeper. Christmas Present is kind of cool in a, a bunch of different ways. So according to the writer Lynn Pikett, she says that Christmas Present presents Scrooge not with real life but with images of real life and 
we as the reader are presented with images of images of real life. The reader is positioned as a spectator of a Scrooge, who is in turn a spectator of the images which are presented to him by his ghostly visitants, and these images always focus on the denial and our enjoyment of the pleasures of consumption. So we are now in Scrooge's shoes. We are now the people who are watching something. And in this chapter, we're explicitly placed in that position so he can make the criticisms of the rich, of those who aren't caring for the poor, even more explicit because really subtly, we are now the person being criticised. The whole being watched thing is very interesting as well. So for the first time, the police force is established. The law has changed, prison has changed. We as Londoners are now being watched by someone. And it's what the critic D.A. Miller has called an economy of policing power. We are always watching others, ready to criticise them, ready to help them. Others are doing the same to us. For the first time in literature, we are being invited to explicitly judge a character but we know we are also being judged ourselves whoa and i mean we take it for granted today it's um one of these dodgy facts that london has more cctv cameras than beijing we are constantly on cctv we are constantly being watched and it doesn't bother us anymore but this invention is very very new for dickens it all links back to this social commentary this making us aware that we are watching divisions in society and we are being judged for not being active we need to be aware it's pretty cool isn't it if you think about it that way christmas yet to come well it's a spoiler alert it represents death the writer devito said that he is a loosely dressed version of the angel of death a popular character in Western literature, the concept of death as a sentient entity has existed in many societies since the beginning of history. Certainly characters like the Grim Reaper, for example, date back to the 15th century. The most popular version was shown as a skeletal figure carrying a large scythe and clothes with a black cloak with a hood. Sorry if you can hear a noise, by the way, that's my neighbour mowing his lawn. It's quite a warm day, so I've got the window open. Yep, this is a really, really professional. I am a professional. Everyone here is professional. It's clear that he is there. If you've read the Dickens, uh, Dickens, if you've read uh, Terry Pratchett's books about death, it kind of makes me wish that the ghost of Christmas yet to come was speaking in all caps and loved curries and had a great sense of humour, but no. <laughs> death is really, really important to Victorians and we don't quite get it as modern people. Like, many of us have experienced death, we've been to funerals, we've lost loved ones, and that is a terrible thing. But death for the Victorians was an industry, and it came down to this weird moral thing. Like, if someone died, you would have to buy a whole new set of clothes, and you would have to do these elaborate rituals. You would need... Ooh, 
I'm trying to find this now. You could consult the Queen's Manual or Castle's Manual to give us to give instructions about appropriate morning etiquette. For deepest mourning, clothes were to be black, symbolic of spiritual darkness. Dresses for deepest mourning were made of non-reflective Parramatta silk or cheaper bombazine. Dresses were trimmed with crepe, hard scratchy silk. It's associated with mourning because it doesn't combine well with anything else. After a specified period, the crepe could be removed. This was called slighting the mourning. And the colour of cloth lightened as the mourning went on. Grey to mauve to white. Jewelry was limited to jet, a hard black coal-like material, sometimes combined with woven hair of the deceased. The length of mourning depended on your relationship to the deceased. The different periods of mourning dictated by society were expected to reflect your natural period of grief. Widows were expected to wear full mourning for two years. Everyone else suffered less. For children mourning parents, the period of time was one year. For grandparents and siblings, six months. For aunts and uncles, two months. For great uncles and aunts, six weeks. For first cousins, four weeks. You had this whole kind of industry built up to sell these special clothes. And the fact that Scrooge, again, is not economically participating. He's got a meagre funeral, he's got no rituals, he's got a rubbishy little tombstone. It shows how bad his life had been. Because not to follow these weird rules meant the offender was immoral. It shows how completely dishonourable he must have been. What could be more awful than to be seen as a terrible person for all eternity? It marks you as a failure. Oh no! It's a complete opposite of what you want to have. What you want to have is like the death of this character called Little Nell in the old curiosity shop one of dickens's other books she was dead dear gentle patient noble nell was dead her little bird a poor slight thing the pressure of a finger would have crushed was stirring nimbly in its cage and the strong heart of its child mistress was mute and motionless forever where were the traces of her early cares her sufferings and fatigues all gone sorrow was dead indeed in her but peace and perfect happiness were born imagined in her tranquil beauty and profound response this is what you want what scrooge's get as God is the absolute worst. This is symbolising to him and everyone else how much he's failed. Everything he's done has come to nothing. Dickens wrote this when he first saw Ebenezer Scroggy's tomb. To be remembered through eternity for only being mean seemed the greatest testament to a life wasted. And that's the kick in the teeth for poor old Scrooge because not only does he now know exactly how awful he has been, he now knows like everything I've done is nothing. <gasps> Oh my gosh. And this procession of spirits is is what leads to his redemption. Much like everything else in Dickens' books, we have to sort of suspend our disbelief when he's talking about redemption. We're not quite sure 
what exactly causes the redemption? We could argue that Christmas past was the most valuable ghost because the final crystallisation of his character solidified when his fiancée released him from his vow to marry. I'm deliberately not talking about Belle that much because I'm going to talk about her next episode. She said, Another idol has displaced me, a golden one. You are changed. When your vow was made, you were another man. I release you with a full heart, the power of you, of him you once were. She realised the old Ebenezer was gone. His character gelled into one she no longer recognised nor loved. It was too late. Scrooge would play out his character story of hardness, cruelty and inability inability to love. Indeed, with the ghost of Christmas past, Scrooge visited his ex-fiance and her family. He realised he missed out on love and being a father with a happy home. He saw he would die like Marley all alone. He saw her daughter and he thought that such another creature, quite as graceful and full of promise, might have called him father. This brought out regret and pain. Scrooge was deeply affected by the past. He wept and mourned his pain. He began to feel genuine regret for his life decisions. He regretted hardening his heart to love. He regretted how he conducted himself with a meanness of spirit. He had lost all the pleasures of life that the innocent little Ebenezer had once relished. He missed out on the warmth and comfort of a family and children. He was lost and empty. Mourning the trauma began to allow him to reopen his heart. It's so, I mean, Christmas past starts it all off but Christmas future shows him exactly where his life is heading his greed is alienating everyone he's a curse to everyone he starts a new life now he knows where he's going you could argue as well that Christmas present is the most powerful ghost and I mean I can make arguments for all three Christmas present shows him different spatial and temporal points of view. Christmas present shows him how he's seen through other people's eyes. Through Mrs Cratchit's interjection of hmm, Mr Scrooge, the founder of the feast, and Fred making fun of him. My question though is, where is Fred when Scrooge dies? Why is he not at the funeral? I'm, all I'm coming out with this is that Fred is a bit of a jerk. But more on that next time. How we've got to argue is it a religious thing is this a weirdly religious a lot of people say no this is 100% secular. He's using the ghosts as a trope to show him, to show us and to show Scrooge exactly what's going on. But some readers say there is absolutely no way that this can't be seen as divine intervention. Dickens was not a religious dude, but has to be some kind of religious thing i don't know it's it's a bit of a mystery all these ghosts and the holy spirit make up your own mind here that is it that is all i have to say on the subject of ghostly beings thank you all very 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 much for listening i will return shortly getting through my ama questions i got about a month ago and i'll be tackling race in othello again thank you for listening hope no ghosts haunt you in your sleep for str8 talk english on twitter straighttalkingenglish.com str8 talkenglish at gmail.com and buy my book the full context of jekyll and hyde now available on amazon and see you soon <laughs>